Perfect. Okay, welcome to Wednesday Night Bible Study, and uh, we are continuing on in our series. So let's just bring up to scratch where we are. We brought right up to, uh, you know, I'm not going to do a review. We'll do the review next week. I'm just going to go straight into what we talked about last week, which is the seven cycles of the judges. And uh, let's open up in, uh, let me see, Judges chapter 3. Let's go to Judges chapter 3. We read Judges chapter 3, verse 9, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Judges chapter 3, verse 9 says here, And when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel who delivered them, even Othniel the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Let's go to the Lord. Father in heaven, I do pray that you bless our Father's study tonight. And I do pray for those who are sick. Please put your healing hand upon them. Please give us a great time in your word. And others who are on their way, give them safety as they travel. But may the Spirit of God just work in our lives. And this evening, because we are indebted to you, we love you, we need you, you are our treasure as we sung right over here in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay, so we are on uh, the seventh section, if you like, of talking through uh, the dispensation of the law. And Israel was under theocracy. What does theocracy mean? Ruled by God, exactly. Absolutely. Okay, so after the people conquered and settled in the promised land, and Joshua died, God began to raise up a series of military leaders called judges. That's Judges chapter 2, verse 16. Quick, you read that. It says here, And nevertheless the Lord raised up judges, which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. The form of government beginning with Moses, with the people under direct or indirect rule of God, is called a theocracy. Absolutely. Okay, so during the period of the judges, which lasted approximately 335 years, so we can date it from 1380 to 1045 BC. The people were rebellious and idolatrous. The book of Judges identifies seven different cycles of the judges, and we call those cycles sin, servitude, supplication, salvation. You can see another way it was worded as service, idolatry, oppression, repentance, deliverance. It just kept going around in those cycles. They kept going around in circles, in cycles. The book of Judges identifies seven different cycles of idolatry resulting in oppression and captivity. Christ, to God for help, deliverance under a judge, followed by a season of service, and then back into the cycle again. So, this study we're going to look at just tonight is not going to identify all seven cycles, but we are going to take a look at several of the judges. The first judge we're going to look at is Othniel. Now, Othniel, Othniel is the nephew of who? Just read it. Caleb. Okay, Alphonse is the nephew of Caleb. So he is the first of the judges. And here we are. Perfect. Okay. And then one of the judges was a woman. What was her name? Deborah. Okay, so Deborah was another judge. We're not looking at them all. That was Judges chapter 4, verse 4. And Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at the time. Now, there was a, this was a period marked by a lack of strong leadership among men. It's not a blessing when men rise up in leadership. Would you agree with that? It's, yeah. not, a it's not a blessing when men will not rise up in leadership. No, it's not a blessing at all. You know, and women, and you know the funny thing is, women want men to lead. They do. You know, women don't want to take up the mantle of the leadership. I understand there are people who are feminists, and all that type of stuff, and they want to lead and all that type of stuff. But I would say, in the general uh, sense of things, women want the men to take up leadership, and the men just wouldn't do it. 
in, in this situation. So God raised up a woman called uh, Deborah. Now let's go to Isaiah chapter 3 as a marker there and just see what, what the Lord's commentary on that is. And it just shows you the direction that Israel was heading in. Okay, where do we see? Isaiah chapter 3. Isaiah chapter 3. Isaiah chapter 3, we're looking at verse 10. It says to Isaiah 3, 10, Say to the righteous that it shall be well with him, for they eat the fruit of their doings. Woe unto the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given. As for my people, children are their oppressors. Yeah, and that's it's saying that society is not doing well when children are ruling. Can you think of times in history where children ruled? How about now? Yeah. I agree with that statement. How about now? Okay. Children are their oppressors and women rule over them. You know, it's really sad. I was looking at the House of Commons and there was some debate going on there. But it was all women. They were debating. And I think, where are the men? Where are the men rising up in leadership? They were saying nothing. They were sat down saying nothing. And that's a real British expression, they were sat down, wasn't it? But they were just sitting down, saying nothing, doing nothing, and the women were at each other. And you know, I'm, I'm just thinking, where is the male leadership here over in Britain at that particular point? Children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Oh, my people, they shall lead thee. They, sorry. Oh, my people, they which lead thee cause thee to err and destroy the way of thy paths. The Lord stand up to plead and stand up to judge the people. So it wasn't a blessing for Deborah to rise up. And you know, even as you see Deborah, she wanted who to lead? Who did you remember? Who did, who did Deborah want to lead? Barak. But Barak says, no, with you lead. I'll go only if you go with me. And it's like, I'm glad Barak went. But 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 uh, Deborah went on to say, okay, but this trip will not be for your honor. Okay. So in Judges chapter 6 and 7, the Midianites came against Israel with an army of about 135,000 men. And Gideon, just give it away, Gideon, I was going to say, who's the judge? Gideon was the sixth judge, and he raised up an army to fight against them. God told him the army was too large, so he, he, he reduced Gideon's army from 32,000 men to how many? There, you got too far. Not yet, we're getting there. 10,000, right? It was 32,000 dead to 10,000 first, okay? So that's Judges chapter 7, verse 3. It says here, Now therefore go to proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. And there returned of the people 22,000, and there remained 10,000. So 32,000 went to 10,000, because God wanted to reduce the men to 10,000. And God said, That's too many. Too many against closet. 135,000 men, 10,000 is too many, so God reduced the men down to how many? 300, okay, that's chapter 7, verse 7. And the Lord said unto Gideon, by 300 men that lapped will I save you, and delivered the immediate knights into their hands, thine hand, and then all the other people go every man unto his place. Now, why did God want, is this too loud by the way, the speaker seems quite loud. Are you fine? Okay. Now, why did God want to reduce the army of 135,000 down to 10, sorry, from 32,000 against 135,000? Why did he want to reduce it down from 32,000 down to 10,000? Because he was going to win the battle. Because he was going to win the battle. And then why did he say that's too many? Let's do 300. Because he wanted to get all the glory. He wanted all the glory. You know, God will do that sometimes in our lives, brethren. 
He'll put us between a rock and a hard place where we'll feel overwhelmed, where we'll say, you know what? None of us like feeling overwhelmed. There's no one in this room that likes feeling overwhelmed. But God will sometimes bring us to the place where we do feel overwhelmed so that we know we need him. And then he delivers us. Has he ever let us down? Never. And it's never going to, he's not going to start today. And he'll stretch us and he'll press us and he'll press us, not oppress us, but press us. And then he'll bring us in a place where he delivers us. And we say, thank you so much, Lord. And he gets all the glory. Aren't you glad about that? That's the way God works. Perhaps the most well-known judge was who? Samson. Okay, so Samson, we read about him in Judges chapter 16, verse 30. Let's turn there. Maybe I'll have somebody else read that for me. And Judges 16, 30 tells us that his greatest victory over their arch enemy, uh, the Philistines, came when? When did, when did Samson have his greatest victory over the Philistines? Yeah. And his death. That is exactly right. Okay, Judges 16, verse 30. He's going to read that. Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself with all his might. And the house fell upon the Lord and all, all the people that were therein. So the dead which he slew with his death were more than they which he slew with life. Samson had a checkered life, but God still used him. God uses unworthy people. No one has it all together. And why does God use unworthy people? Because he creates them. Because <laughs> he creates them? Okay. Yeah. You think of Samson, he ran from the dead. He was prophesied. Yeah. That's a promise. Because God will not change his word. Yeah. That's why the Samson went Fair point. Yeah. Because he maintained his word as God will use him. God said he use him. Okay. Yeah. I, I definitely accept that. But why does God use imperfect vessels? God knew he was going to be imperfect. Why does God use imperfect vessels? It's hard to push to find a perfect one. Yeah, that's true. Hard push to find a perfect one. That's fair point. Why else does God use imperfect vessels? Because he gets the glory. He, he gets the glory. You know what? We want. I'm sure I'm not the only one in this room, but in my youth particularly, I wanted to have people I could look up to. And I wanted to have Christians I could see before me who were just a great example. I said, okay, I want to follow these people. Am I the only person that ever looked this way? Would you say many of you thought that way as well? Either half thought or hard thinking that way. There's no perfect person. And people are always going to let you down. You look at someone's life clearly enough, you're going to find cracks in their foundation. You're going to find faults in their lives. But I want to tell you something. God always uses imperfect vessels because he's the only one who's perfect. And again, he gets all the glory, doesn't he? So this is really interesting. Okay. So another judge was called Gideon. So Gideon was a, a, a poor farmer's son. We've, we've mentioned him already. And uh, during the oppression by the Midianites, he was a faithful judge for a generation. But unfortunately, he weakened in the end and his sons proved incapable of ruining, ruling, should I say, in his debt. Samson, going back to Samson, his life was of one of contradiction. He was used of God to help overthrow the oppressive rule of the Philistines, yet he lapsed into carnality, even falling in love with an immoral woman named Delilah. Okay, elsewhere in the world, what was going on elsewhere in the world? About 1200 BC was the fall of Troy. Do you remember the fall of the Trojans? The, the, the Trojan horse? Yeah, okay. And then 1180 BC, the Sea Peoples. Two of the Sea Peoples. Sea Peoples. Sea Peoples. If I can say it right. It's a Wednesday evening syndrome. 
Who are the sea peoples? Historians, who are the sea peoples? The Philistines. They were called the sea peoples, eh? The sea peoples, the Philistines invaded Canaan. 1100 BC, the Assyria, Assyria conquers Babylon and establishes its empire. Isn't that interesting? 1100 BC, that Assyria conquers Babylon, then Babylon turns around and conquers Assyria after that. It's not really interesting. Anyway, history is interesting. Okay, another judge. Or no, we won't talk about a judge right now. During the time period of the judges, an Israelite man named Who married a Moabite woman, and his name wasn't Who, by the way. Who married a Moabite woman during the period of the Judges? Moabite was Ruth. Yeah, so she was Ruth. Boaz, exactly, okay? So, and they had a son, and do you, know, do you remember what his son, their son's name was? Obed. And Obed was the grandfather of who? David, exactly. We won't read Ruth chapter 4, verse 13 to 22, okay? But set in the midst of darkness at the time of the Judges, the book of Ruth is a beautiful story of love and redemption. Even as the nation declined, God was moving to prepare a family or a of the tribe of Judah through whom the Messiah would come. God is always working in the background. He's always working. You know, there are times when it seems like God is not working. He's always working. You know, the, we don't believe in Baptist successionism, where, in other words, you can trace Gospel Baptist Church, another Baptist Church, all the way back to Jesus or to John the Baptist. We don't believe that. But we do believe that there's always been Baptist churches, okay? Because Jesus said, I will build my church. And, and, and the church he built were Baptist churches. They may not have been called Baptist churches, but we remind ourselves that the definition of a Baptist church from history is born-again Christians who baptize their, their converts by immersion. We got the name from the Catholics called Baptist, so the name is stuck. We were called Anabaptists. It was we derogatory. Were called, when it, was it was derogatory, but the name stuck, and that's where we called. That's where the name Baptist came from. We were given it from the Catholics way before the Reformation. But here's the point. Here's the point. Spurgeon made a great point. He said, "It's like a river. You can't always trace the river. Sometimes it goes underground and it comes out again." And uh, so there's a, there's a what a picture, he said, you, you can't always see where there are Baptist churches, but they're, sometimes they go underground, sometimes they come up again, you can't always trace them, but there's always been church, Baptist churches since the time of Christ, because Jesus said, I will build my church, so that, that's, that's where we get, we get it from scripture, and he, he, he would build his church, and here's the point, in the same way, if I could use that picture, Spurgeon made that great point, but I'm going to take that as, a, as a, an analogy for this, God is always working. You can't always see God at work. Sometimes it seems like God is doing nothing. You with me here? Have you been there in your life where it seems like God is doing nothing? He's always doing something, even if you can't see it. That's encouraging, isn't it? That's a great lesson we can learn from the book of Judges. Okay. Now, the best description of the period of the Judges is found in Judges chapter 17, verse 6. Judges chapter 21, verse 25, they say the exact same thing. At that time, there was no king in Israel, and every man did that was right in his own eyes. So that was the period of the judges, okay? It was anarchy. It was a period of anarchy. Again, God is still working even in the midst of it all. So after the period of the judges, God raised up who? Samuel, exactly. That's Acts chapter 13, verse 20. 
So according to 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 20, Samuel was a king, a prophet, a shepherd, or a general. Well done. <laughs> okay. These, these aren't hard. These aren't hard questions. So Samuel was God's prophet who acted in the capacity of a judge, providing the transition into the next period, that of the what was going to come next after? The monarchy. Absolutely. He was raised in the home of Eli, the high priest, and the time of his from the time of his weaning. Okay. Hannah was his mother, and she had promised him to God. If he would grant her her prayer for a son, as a prophet and a priest, Samuel would, would anoint the first king of Israel. So, here's something that's really important. Samuel was a prophet and a priest, but he was not what? What office did he not hold? A king. He, he could not be a king. There's only one person who is prophet, priest, and king. His name is? Jesus. And you know what? God has always judged kings who try to take on... Who, who may be able to prophesy, not be allowed to prophesy, but if they try to take up a priestly role, God will judge them. Who in the scriptures tried to take on a priestly role and God judged him? Saul. Okay, before Jeroboam, Saul did. Saul tried to take up a priestly role, God judged him. And I don't know if Jeroboam did that. There was another king, he tried to offer up a sacrifice. Does anybody remember who it was? It's part of it, asking. Asa, not Manasseh, but Asa tried to offer up a sacrifice and, uh, and, and uh, God judged him for that as well. I think he became a leper. Okay? So you can, so a, pro, a king could be a prophet, but he could be a prophet and a priest. Okay, you with me here? Because that only belongs to Jesus Christ. So that is like blessing. Okay, now, let's see where else. So we talked about Samuel there. Now, um, important themes so far. Let's consider the themes, okay? So by requiring the Israelites to apply what to the side posts? Blood. Blood. And the upper posts of their houses in order to cause the Lord to pass over their home and not get a firstborn. That first Passover night in Egypt, God was once again demonstrating the importance of what? That's really important. There's power in the blood. Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the... When I see the blood, I will... Pass over you. There's many, many songs written by the blood of Jesus. Blood is such an important thing. That's why it's wrong to eat blood. That's that's mentioned in the Old Testament and reiterated in the New Testament. The records of the godly life of Seth and his family, and then of Shem, would have been carried into Egypt by Jacob and preserved by his family until the time of Moses. On Mount Sinai, God wash. What did God do in Mount Sinai? Okay, he gave the law, okay? The written word of God, okay? And then he gave him the Ten Commandments by stone, and those Ten Commandments turned into what? How many commandments? 600. 600, 365. 365 negative commandments, 248 positive commandments. Put them all together, how many? 600. 13. 13. Oh, that's great maths there. Okay, okay. Excellent, okay. So there's 613 commandments in all. Excellent, okay. So Moses faithfully compiled all those records into what we now call what? Well, all the records, all of it all together. The Pentateuch. Okay, the law. Yeah, you're, you're right, the law, the Pentateuch. What's the other name first? The Torah. Excellent. Okay. So once Israel was established as a nation and a priesthood, and God gave a safekeeping of his word to whom? The Jews, that's found in Romans chapter 3. Okay. Then, 
as the Israelites prepared to enter into Canaan, God made it clear that there be no, they were not to intermarry with the ungodly people of that land. Why? Why did God not want them to intermarry with the people of the land? Compromise in what? Well, compromise in what? Oh, that's true. Absolutely. But why else? Their beliefs. Their, their beliefs. Yep. Why else? To see. Okay. So all, all of the above. Okay. Do you remember, God promised them through Abraham the seed, he promised the land, all was affected if they intermarried with other nations. And he was so serious that he, about his people keeping uh, separate from sin that he ordered them to completely destroy the nations that were there. Once again, God was calling his people to come out from among them and be separate. Let's finish with 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And we'll finish up with this for tonight, and then we're going to go to prayer. Second Corinthians chapter 6. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 to 18. You want to read those verses. This, this is what encapsulates the holiness of the law in the Old Testament, being brought now into the New Testament for us as believers. So let's read those verses. Second Corinthians 6, verse 14 to 18. Okay, Mary, go ahead. So God is saying, come out from unbelievers. Don't mingle with them. Don't harness with them. Don't yoke up with them. Separate yourself as believers onto holiness. Does that mean we shouldn't have unbelievers who are friends or love them? Absolutely not. What do we want to do with unbelievers? Christians for Christ. We love them to get saved. And that's why we make friends with them to reach them and and, uh, and uh, some of them have like, been very faithful and loyal and it's such an encouragement to us, but we're always telling them. Like, I had a fellow up in my office, he, he says almost every time I see him, you're not going to convert me. And uh, I, I, I let him know in uncertain terms I've every plan of trying to convert him. <laughs> you know, way. But he keeps coming back, you know. And, uh, you know, that's what we want to do. We want to see people wonderfully saved because we love them. Amen? Okay, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you.